Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, the United States stands firmly with the people of Cuba as they assert their universal rights. And we call on the government, government of Cuba, to refrain from violence or attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And clearly looking like I'm between vacations, I am Nick Savera. <laughs> that is right. It's almost vacation time. On the program today from the Miami Herald, Alex Doherty is going to be joining us. He does fantastic work covering all the news out of Washington, D.C., but recently covering the protests that have been happening in Miami over all of the issues that have been going on in Cuba and the protests that have been happening there. Uh, IG, TikTok, if you want to continue the conversation with us, follow us on social at Can We Please Talk podcast there on Twitter at Can We Please Talk and on Patreon as well, whatever audio podcast platform you're listening to us. Or if you're watching the video clips on YouTube, click on the Patreon link there, become a Patreon subscriber and see more bonus content from all of our episodes. Before we get into it, Nick, I want to play a clip of what is happening in the situation in Cuba. Thousands taking the street of Havana and at least 14 other cities in protest over the weekend, demanding an end to the 62-year dictatorship and protesting the lack of food and COVID vaccines. They were the biggest protests in decades in a country with tight police control and surveillance on dissidents. Demonstrators attempted to broadcast the protests live with their cell phones, but Cuba's authorities cut internet service on multiple occasions. Yesterday, NBC News reported that streets of Havana were quiet overnight and there was a heavy military and police presence. There were also pro-government groups in the streets in sections of the city where protesters clashed with the police earlier yesterday. So as you can see and imagine, um, a lot has been going on um, 
in, in Cuba, obviously a little bit personal to me as a Cuban American son of my father who came here in 1961 with my grandmother at the age of eight years old and other family members that have come here, uh, you know, to escape what happened during the Castro era there and then into his brother uh, Raul taking over and obviously now the new president that's there after Raul Castro stepping down. Uh, Nick, normally I say hello to you, so let me say hello to you first, but um, this episode is going to be a little bit personal. I want to get some of your your takes, though, first, because obviously we, we had talked about this off air, about doing an episode about this and really getting somebody on the program to kind of educate us a little bit more on it. So give me give me some of your quick takes when you saw some of the protests uh, happening over the weekend. And, and I don't even know where to start, man. Like, we're cutting off the internet. Like, let's all process that for a second. Like, we're talking about a country that is cutting off internet to prevent people basically from using social media to put forward what's been happening. Um, I mean, if you think historically of of examples of where social media actually played an important role in really telling us what's going on globally, I think of the Arab Spring back in, I think it was over 2009, maybe 2010, you know, just talking about what's going on in the Middle East and changeovers in, in governments there. But what's happening in Cuba, though, and Mike, I'm glad you met, you mentioned just really, you know, from 1961, you know, with your family coming over, you know, we're talking, and that's only a few years removed from the Cuban revolution. So now we're talking from that period to today. And the idea that these protests are in response to what we've seen happen really now, as we're into the third administration, actually, third regime, if you want to use that term here, um, you know, no longer is it about the, the Castro's, but now, um, you know, the new, the new president who's, who's in place now, who's um, president uh, uh, Diaz Canel. And I, and I use the word president a little just hesitantly, to be honest with you. Um, But what we're seeing is being played out is also an opportunity an opportunity for people who have just never agreed uh, with the politics of Cuba to stand up and say, once again, this isn't right. This is what this isn't. This can't be the government for us. It certainly isn't by us. Um, you know, and part of this is due to a reaction to COVID-19, you know, just Cuba's inability to address the, the need for vaccines, a country that historically has had moments where, They've been taking pride for being able to provide health care you know, to its citizens. But in this moment, we're seeing a failure in the administration. And the one thing that this administration has always, or multiple administrations have always prided themselves on is being able to, as communists like to say, you know, address the common needs, you know, make sure that everyone at baseline has health care, right? Um, that ain't the case right now. So what we're seeing play out is people just that are rightfully outraged and saying that, that the time's come for you know, the, the time has come for a change. Uh, and we're looking at an administration that is not, you know, led by Fidel Castro. You know, we're not seeing a space where the voice is going to be silenced. Although there's attempts right now, you know, when you cut off the internet uh, and the growing police and military presence. So that, that voice of dissent is going to be quieted a little bit. But right now, you know, as I sit here in Eastern Pennsylvania, you in New York, we're very much aware of what's going on. You more from a personal, a far more personal standpoint than I am. But it's hard for me to ignore historically what has led to this, which has been now in our third regime of a, of a communist system. And I'm not here to discuss communism or socialism or right. capitalism. That's for another episode um, or preferably getting someone who, who can talk more intelligently about that. But this is about the fact that 
you know, from an education space, that's the op- that's the space I operate in. Once again, this is history repeating itself. We're seeing people that have the space to come forward and say, once again, this is not the government we want. And this is an opportunity for their voices to be heard. You know, um, there's a lot of mixed emotions, obviously, for me. It's not really mixed emotions. You know, we, we, the sensitivities around the episode we did with Israel-Palestine is a little bit different, right? Like, those are actually two different countries, two different ideologies, two different people that are, hey, this is my land. No, this is my land. Um, and, and what's happening in Cuba is I think everyone's kind of on the same page, right? The people are being oppressed, right? It's just about policy, right? Democratic leaders. And we saw during the Obama regime and how he kind of lacks some of the blockade and the embargoes. Um, and then what the Trump era policies really did. And then you tack on a, a global crisis like COVID-19, and it's really hit the small island uh, really hard. I'm not going to dive into, you know, the 61, 62 years, maybe even a little bit more, you know, in the Batista days um, and the history of, you know, the Cuban people and, and what they've been going through. And, you know, even as of today, when I was talking to my father earlier about this, you know, I have family members that have worked in the government, which I never knew that. Um, you know, my uncle came here in 91 and brought over three of his kids. The other two kids actually worked in government positions and stayed on the island. So, you know, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky situation uh, just in terms of we all understand at a humanitarian level that the reason why these protests are happening in Cuba now and what happened in 94, they're very similar, right? The, the difference is COVID-19 has exacerbated a lot of that. And specifically right now, food, water, medicine to help the rising COVID cases and combat that is at the core of this. And the people taking the streets, we've seen a lot of uh, celebrities coming out advocating for this, you know, in terms of like they, they feel helpless. There's nothing that they can do to help. And the politicians keep running around in circles with the rhetoric. And there's no real action to be taken towards it. There's a fantastic article from friend of the program, Sabrina Rodriguez on Political Now about, you know, what the Biden response and the administration will do for some of this, because we really don't know what, you know, the administration really, I don't think, had Cuba, you know, riots on the streets for democracy on their bingo card this fast, specifically dealing with everything that was happening with the crisis at the border, with the troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. Let's play a clip from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, actually about this issue. These are protests inspired by the harsh reality of everyday life in Cuba, not people uh, in another country. I'm saying that because I think there have been a range of accusations out there, as you well know, Jeff. Uh, in terms of uh, our assessment of uh, a future, our, our current our policy, I should say, uh, it continues to be, our approach continues to be governed by two principles. First, support for democracy and human rights, which is going to continue to be at the core of our efforts through empowering the Cuban people to determine their own future. Second, Americans, especially Cuban Americans, are the best ambassadors for freedom and prosperity in Cuba. So, Nick, I know you had some thoughts about Jen Psaki there. And obviously, there's both of those things we kind of agree with, obviously, you know, that the, the democracy part of this and standing with the citizens. It's really about, like I mentioned, the action. Like, how do we execute some of this? So I want to get your take on what Jen Psaki said there. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo the same thing as, as you're speaking to, you know, first and foremost, yes, I think it's important that our um, our administration speaks to, you know, recognizing the need for the, the, the people's need 
you know, that people are protesting the streets about, about being able to have a democratic government. Um, at the same time, though, I it, it lands on me a little flat that this is, you know, the administration's stance. But uh, and I understand tactically they're not in a place yet to put forward a plan as to what to do. That may actually be in development right now, but um, it, it feels a little lukewarm. I know things have changed. I know in March, the stance was to be a little more removed from it. But as you put it out there, and I really like the bingo card analogy, like this was never going to be on the radar. But, you know, honestly, with a new president in power, um, you know, Raul Castro stepping down, like this has become the opening. This is now, and again, this is on our, our continent, right? So like this, or rather in our hemisphere, this becomes a priority for us. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of going a little all over the place. But honestly, as I've heard that clip, I'm kind of like, yeah, what does that mean? And you know, obviously, when she says, like, we are looking at it, she's a press secretary. Like, she's only going to be messaging what the administration wants to message right now. My question then would be, you know, putting aside the press secretary for a minute, what is the administration's plan on this? You know, what is actually going to happen? Because right. if we're talking about, you know, people that are very, I mean, close to our borders, and not to mention, again, I'm saying this redundantly to you, like, we're talking about as this affects the state of Florida. Yeah, we have Cuban Americans, and I'm going to emphasize Cuban and Americans in this case, who have a very vested interest in what's going on and and rightfully are curious to know, what is this new administration going to do? Uh, I don't envy Biden's position. Again, you know, he's been in office (laughs) since January of this year, and we're only in July. And, you know, here comes another crisis outside of the United States that the U.S., as it's supposed to do, or at least has the prestige and reputation of doing, stands up lead right make a decision um so i'm i'm just simply i'm curious the ball is essentially in the biden administration's court yeah. her comments seem lukewarm to me but it seems to be the te- the current temperature if i'm reading their administration correctly right now i mean there's so much to what's happening right now i encourage people uh like i mentioned sabrina rodriguez with that fantastic article on political sarah marsh as well a reporter for reuters um, wrote a fantastic piece about the internet cut off like we played at that the clip at the top because that's been really at the core of this right the protests happened on the streets and then all of a sudden the cuban government kind of issued this you know uh, internet blackout and on all of a sudden facebook telegram whatsapp mm-hmm. the the access that people had to those applications to live stream some of this stuff and really showcase what's happening there with the protests got cut off. So, you know, as of this taping, I believe one person had had died in the protests. A couple others were injured. Uh, there's been reports that multiple people have died in some of the protests over the weekend. You don't really know with the information of what's going on down there truly. And then, like you mentioned, the Cuban president uh, mentioning the blockade again. And he's like, hey, the U.S. really wants to help end this blockade, right? That's how you can help us right away. There's so much to this. I'm not going to claim to be an expert, even though it is, it is of my heritage. And um, and like I mentioned before, you know, with, with people that I that well, family members of mine that have worked and again, not in decision making positions in government. I want to clarify that it's more of like the television angle of it. <laughs> well, well, of course, another Leon would be in the television angle of, of Cuban media. But it's um, it's terrible what's happening over there, what's been happening for years there's a lot to this. Um, and after the break, Alex Dockerty from the Miami Herald, who has been covering a lot of this and has written some fantastic pieces that I recommend you go check out online. He's going to be joining us to help us break it all down. Nick, a quick break here as today's episode is brought to you by the good folks at Omeo. Omeo.com is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe 
in North America, effortless. Nick, last time we did this read, you were talking about some dumb business trip you're going on. I don't care about the business trip. Where's Nick Saveri taking the family? Where, 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 what's an ideal destination for the Zaveris? It's probably going to be domestic, bro. <laughs> we got to get these girls vaccinated. Um, but no, I think our hope would be to, you know, possibly get it, get out to Colorado. You know, we've been to Denver a couple of times. Nice. I have friends living out there. Um, I, I just, in, just enjoy the flight. You know, not too many hours. Great for the baby. Um, I could see us possibly heading a little further West. Actually, Texas is a possibility. We've got, friends in Austin and Houston and all over the, the great state. So that's also there too. But yeah, but don't sleep on the business opportunity, man. Come yeah. up. I'm heading down the Fort. I got to get down to Fort Smith, Arkansas at some point and I need help. Well, hold on a second, because I don't know if homeo.com is booking for Fort Smith, Arkansas, but, but you can enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. Nick, you're going to need about That's two of those. You're going to need about, you may need about two or three of those to get to Fort Smith, Arkansas. But it's never been simpler to book your first real vacation for 2021. And the best of all, Nick, using Omeo saves you time and money. That's a win-win in my book. The copy says our books, but it's a win in my book, folks. There it is. Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer. You know, I got to be honest. There's a heat wave going on right now. You know, it's pretty hot right now. Dude, I saw a text message about New York City, man. Have you turned off the AC? Are you doing your part as a, as a citizen? I thought the text message was from Omeo telling me, <laughs> hey, you need to get by a resort pool, something like that, because it's way too hot. Oh, my. Oh, it is. It's a scorcher. But listen, right now, Nick, check this out. I'm going to give our listeners and you too, my friend. Head to Omeo.com. You're going to use the code Omeo, O-M-I-O-5 at checkout. Okay. That's valid until July 31st for new users, all the modes of transportations that you want to book there. You're going to get a discount. Just go to omeo.com and book or whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. There's a link in the show notes right there. Click on that link. Omeo.com. It's just a pick me up for your 2021 travel needs. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Like we mentioned at the top, he's a fantastic reporter at the Miami Herald. Check out all his work at MiamiHerald.com. That is, that is Alex Doherty. Alex, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thanks for hopping on the podcast with us. Yeah, thank you. So, Alex, we wanted to have you on the program. Obviously, in the recent weeks, we've seen a lot of news coming out of the Miami area, you know, with the uh, arrests that have happened in connection with the Haitian president assassination, specifically also now lately with the protests that are happening in Cuba and specifically in Miami-Dade. Um, what's the latest that you can tell us as of this taping that's happening with the protest in Cuba? Yeah, so the latest of what's happening in Cuba, um, on Sunday, we saw widespread demonstrations throughout the country, um, the likes of which have not been seen for decades. The last really widespread protest was in 1994. Um, by all accounts, this was bigger. Uh, I wasn't, I was barely alive in 1994, so I was not around for that. But um, that's what happened on Sunday. And since then, we've seen, uh, to some extent, a sustain, some sustained protests throughout the country, not just in Havana, um, but in other places, uh, in rural areas and small towns, um, which is a lot less common. And today, what we've been seeing is the government's really cracking down. Um, there's a lack of internet access throughout the country. Um, that's been a big priority prior to the last 36 hours or so for policymakers in Miami and Washington. 
Um, that's really limited what we're able to know on the ground. Uh, it's kind of coming out in bits and pieces. Um, there's various snippets or you know 30 second minute long clips of videos of protesters being beaten by police, by um, you know folks who look like police but aren't dressed like police. Um, so that's what we've been seeing a lot of, um, and you know certainly protesters of, of all stripes being harassed in some sense um, by the Cuban government, Cuban military, and Cuban police forces. Alex, what's been thank and thank you again for joining us today. Um, and for you and just the reporting that you've been doing, what's what seems to be happening with the current administration of the of the current president, actually, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, uh, that's just creating an environment for these recent protests? So there's a lot of factors at play. Um, and obviously, like I'm covering things from Washington perspective. So, you know, this hasn't been the focus of my beat, you know, going back the last six months or a year. Um, but certainly COVID has played a big role in where we're at right now, but it's definitely not the main factor. Um, it is really a groundswell of folks who are tired of one party rule uh, in Cuba um, and they're tired of the mismanagement, corruption, inequality that results from that one party rule. Um, a lot of those long standing grievances have been exacerbated with the current context that we're in right now. And that is Cuba has gone off on its own to try and make it a coronavirus vaccine. Um, they have not distributed it widely um, compared to a lot of other developed nations like the United States. Um, COVID cases have been rising in Cuba in the last few uh, weeks, especially uh, deaths, hospitalizations, all of those things are up. Uh, and there's really a lack of um, available um, medical care, uh, access to vaccines for sure. Um, so that's kind of like the, the current context, but the larger context and the larger goal of these protests is not, hey, you want you know, equal access to vaccines is something much more than that is, you know, we are tired of the regime. We're tired of, you know, not having free and fair elections, for example, or even just a way to, you know, be able to be part of the process if you're not part of the ruling elite in Cuba. So Alex, you kind of fed into the follow-up there because now uh, the attention always shifts when this happens to the United States' response, right? And as always, politicians gather and say, let's find out what's happening in Miami. We've seen a wave of protests in Miami from a lot of Cuban-Americans. Pitbull has come out, gente de zona. A lot of people uh, from the Cuban community in, in music and in business have come out and they feel helpless, right? So, and you wrote a fantastic article, by the way, uh, outlining what Democrats want President Biden to do in terms of delivering a speech down in Florida. So what is the next step for the Biden administration to do something here? Because, you know, we've allu we alluded to it before you came on the program. This is probably not on their bingo card uh, for 2021 in terms of nations to really help out or at least step in from a humanitarian crisis perspective. So what what is next for the Biden administration? Yeah, I think the, the thing that underpins all of this for the Biden administration is Cuba policy was a signature achievement or uh, a signature blunder, uh, depending on what side you are, of the last part of the Barack Obama administration. Uh, we saw President Trump roll back almost all of those policy changes in Cuba, um, you know, to make it a lot harder to travel to the island, for example, uh, send remittances, money back to uh, family in Cuba. And you know, and, and um, underpinning all of that was Biden coming into office, really not performing well in Florida in 2020, even though he won the election 
Uh, he did not perform well in Florida as a whole. He certainly did not perform well in Miami-Dade County, which he managed to win, but by a much smaller margin than what we saw Hillary Clinton, for example, four years prior uh, in, in Miami-Dade County. So that underpins all of this. And so then we get into January, February, um, when his administration starts to get questions about, hey, what are you going to do about Cuba policy? They promised on the campaign trail that they would make some changes to Cuba policy. The response was, hey, this isn't a top priority for us. We're in a pandemic. There's you know, China and, and other foreign policy concerns in the Middle East and Afghanistan, for example, um, that are really front burner. And so you know, this is under review, but it is not something that is top of mind. That's kind of where things left um, at around March of, of this year. Then we get to this week, we get to Sunday, we get to the protests, um, everything's changed. Um, you know, like I said at the top, the protests that we saw in Cuba have been like nothing we've seen in the last 20 plus years. And so that really forced the administration's hand, um, both in the sense of, you know, you had folks certainly in Miami who are wanting the administration to do more, whether that's Democrat, Republican, Independent, um, you certainly have folks in Cuba who are looking to the United States, wondering what, if anything, is going to happen, what the administration is going to do. Uh, and then you have folks, uh, you know, more probably on the further left part of the spectrum in the Democratic Party, who are very, very against um, the embargo and the approach that the United States has taken to Cuba for years and don't want to see any kind of forceful response to the protests in Cuba and, and basically just want it to be. Uh, left alone, hands off Cuba is kind of the, the hashtag you see from that side of things. And SOS Cuba is the hashtag you see on Twitter from folks highlighting the protests and wanting wanting to make changes. And so that leaves Biden kind of in a bind of, you know, hey, you know, now there's this incident that's gone on uh, that, you know, wasn't a, a U.S. led response. It was something that happened in Cuba. And what should we do? What can we do? Because now any policy changes that we may or may not announce are all going to be through a prism of, hey, there was these massive protests. So Biden must be doing this in response to those protests. Um, and so I think that makes the considerations uh, different than certainly they were a week ago. And that is really where we see the Biden administration at right now. They haven't made any major announcements as of yet with regard to Cuba policy. They've voiced support for the protests, support for the protesters and have called on, on the Diaz-Canal regime to not use violence against the protesters. Um, but beyond that, we have not seen anything in terms of substantive policy, policy changes as of yet. Alex, what's the political fallout if, if the Biden administration, it's just in this scenario, decides to take a more of an aggressive approach? I'm not talking about troops on the ground, but um, beyond beyond simply saying, and, and prior to you coming on, we heard a, press, we heard a clip from uh, the uh, press secretary, Jen uh, Saki, um, just talking about the, the overall view seems to be that, you know, we support, you know, the, the push for democracy. That seems to be what the administration's talking point is. But what's the potential political cost if there is more of an aggressive turn toward um, supporting the protesters? Yeah, so I think there's a, a few things at play here. Um, number one, no matter what the U.S. does, I think the one card that Cuba has in its potential pocket here, it's something that both, uh, you know, Marco Rubio on the Republican side and, you know, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas have both said they do not want Cubans uh, coming to the United States, most likely via boat, um, which is what we saw in the two previous times where there were protests in Cuba in 1980 and in 1994. Um, so that's out there now. Marco Rubio has actually gone maybe a little step further, said, hey, we would consider this 
I would consider this an act of war. And I think the Biden administration should consider, consider this a hostile action should Cuba do this. Now, who knows what they're going to do? You know, that may be irrespective of anything the United States does. If they deem the protests have gotten too hard to handle or, you know, they keep popping up in ways that the uh, Cuban military and police apparatus uh, is actually worried about their long term uh, control of the country. Um, you know, we could see that happen no matter what the United States does or what they don't do. Um, I do think you're going to see, um, and we've already seen this, um, you know, America will be blamed by Cuba for no matter what happens. Uh, I certainly think if you see any more robust actions from the Biden administration, um, that's going to be the response from, from the Cuban regime. I would say those robust responses range from at the high end potential military action, not really boots on the ground. I've not seen anyone in any sort of position of, of power or stature making that point. I have seen some Miami Republicans, uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez yesterday uh, talked about the option for strategic bombing should be on the table, uh, comparing it to Kosovo and Panama. Uh, that's probably the highest level of response that I've seen talked about in, in kind of circles of power, so to speak. Um, and then it ranges down to other options like, you know, putting balloons that would otherwise give Cubans internet access uh, offshore um, or, you know, pressuring uh, places like the European Union, for example, um, or other U.S. allies in Latin America, Mexico and Canada to really kind of come up with some coordinated response. I think in that case, you know, it becomes a little harder to just blame the United States if you were Cuba. I'm sure they will probably do that anyway if history is any guide, um, but it would give some cover to the way the United States has handled this. If, I think the way the Trump administration handled um, Venezuela a couple of years ago is an example of that, where they recognized Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela, even though Nicolas Maduro essentially controls the country. And they did get a lot of international buy-in for that uh, stance. It wasn't just the United States. Um, and so I think it would be interesting if we saw some kind of international buy-in we're not exactly sure what that looks like yet. The Biden administration hasn't really gone into detail about what that may look like, but that would obviously be something that would be a step down from, you know, sending some kind of military response, whether that's the United States or, you know, a larger um, network of allies. Do you think the current uh, response, you know, from the Biden administration is, what is that, what's the connection between that response and currently our relationship to the first non-Castro leader in, in Cuba? Yeah, I think for, for most people in the United States, um, not having a Castro there um, is symbolic, but it doesn't necessarily change the way the situation on the ground in Cuba's worked. I think there are some questions about, like, does the Canal enjoy the same kind of legitimacy or even fear that um, Raul uh, Castro had when he was, was there and certainly Fidel? Um, that's an open question. Uh, I think the fact that you saw um, Raul Castro, who is supposed to be retired, um, showing up at a party meeting in response to these protests is some indication that there is a, a recognition that the name and the family, the Castro family, maybe carries some more weight in Cuba. Um, but I think for for Americans, Cuban Americans, um, nothing has changed in the sense of, you know, there's not free and fair elections. There's not the ability for people who disagree with the regime to express themselves freely um, and, you know, personal freedoms, uh, entrepreneurship. Um, you know, and then access to food and medicine is all limited. So I think in that sense, there really isn't a major uh, change on this. And I, I think that that's somewhat indicative of why you saw the Biden administration, at least prior to Sunday, choosing not to do anything with regard to changing Trump's Cuba policies, because I think they recognize that 
um, you know, what Obama did did not lead to, at least very quickly, uh, free and fair elections and expression. And I think there was an argument from a lot of those in the exile community that like, look, like what Obama did emboldened the regime in Cuba and, and gave more legitimacy to them um, rather than what I think, you know, if you ask anyone in the Obama administration, they weren't like, you know, we're happy with communism and we want Castro. I think it is like, look, we're, we can't force other countries to do what we want them to do, but we should, you know, have more of an exchange of goods and ideas than we otherwise did. And I think that's kind of just the ideological um, spectrum that we still see with Cuba today, regardless of whether or not a Castro is, is in power or not. Alex, interest of full disclosure, I'm a Cuban American and my father came here in 61 uh, with my grandmother to kind of escape uh, what was happening in Cuba back then. Um, so I give you that background and context because we had uh, Sabrina Rodriguez on, the political immigration reporter, and we were talking to her about, you know, the southern border and the Triangle Nation specifically. And I asked her, if we do nothing, what happens? Right. Because it's been 20 years of nobody has really done any policy to step in and kind of at least control some of the surge of the numbers of people that keep coming in year over year. So you mentioned it, you alluded to it earlier, that the U.S. is going to get blamed one way or the other here. Put on a prognosticator's hat for us. What happens over the next six to 12 months from your lens in D.C. with the Biden administration and their response to everything that's happening? So I think the one thing that is that I'm more confident of in terms of prognosticating is that you're going to see Miami politicians and in particular Miami Republicans uh, making Cuba a very salient policy issue and political issue uh, as we move forward. I think that's the one thing that I'm you know, fairly confident that, that we can say. I mean, that was happening even before everything we saw on Sunday. You know, there's a certain part of Miami, there's a certain part of the exile community where that issue is always going to be the most important issue. Um, it's what drives them to vote. Um, it's what inspired, frankly, a lot of these people to come to the United States to be able to cast votes like that. Um, and so I think it's, it's fair to say you're going to see, you know, continued messaging from folks like Marco Rubio, Mario Diaz-Balart, um, you know, until there's a day anywhere in the future where there's free and fair elections in Cuba and it's considered a, a democratic country. Um, I think in terms of the situation on the ground in Cuba and, you know, what policy changes we may see from Biden, uh, it's a lot harder to prognosticate that in a confident way. Um, you know, I think Venezuela can be somewhat of a guide. Um, you know, we saw mass protests against um, Nicolas Maduro uh, back in 2018 and into 2019 um, resulted, like I said earlier, in the U.S. recognizing Juan Guaido as the leader of Venezuela. Um, but there's and, you know, Maduro has continued to control the military, he's continued to control the police forces. Um, he's continued to control the oil in Venezuela, which is a way that he's able to keep power because it enriches his inner circle. Uh, in the case of Cuba, um, you know, they probably have more international support than, than Venezuela does at, at this point. Um, you know, there's definitely been less um, of an international condemnation of what we saw in Cuba over the weekend and the subsequent responses to that than we saw, for example, in, in Venezuela a couple of years ago. So I think that's a really big challenge. Um, and, and certainly, you know, this is a country that, um, unlike Venezuela, that at one point you know, had elections um, and elections that were considered free and fair in some respects. Uh, Cuba, since the 1960s, hasn't. So 
um, that's a really, you know, there's the institutions are a lot more ingrained uh, in Cuba with regard to, you know, building democracy or, or building some kind of movement within, you know, the institutions like a parliament or a Supreme Court that exist in Venezuela to the extent that the Maduro regime has co-opted them and basically turned them into puppets for, you know, Maduro and his cronies. Um, those institutions in Cuba have always been, you know, under the control of the Communist Party. Um, so it, it adds another layer, I think, of complexity and, and another layer of challenge uh, to this situation. But again, you know, the the popular support and, and you know, will of the Cuban people uh, could be a game changer in this situation. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Biden administration response um, is probably going to fall along some of those same lines. If they think there's something that they can do that actually advances that goal of getting free and fair elections without being seen as, you know, putting the thumb on the scale to the extent that it, this is an American-led intervention, um, you know, I think we'll see changes. Um, but I think they're going to take their time and not really, you know, launch into this head first. You know, Alex, we've been talking you know, at length today about about your reporting and just the great work you've been doing. You know, last week we had on Bianca Ocasio, another reporter with the Miami Herald. Um, and something that something I've noticed, you know, recently, and actually it's a tweet, I'm thinking of a tweet that you recently put up uh, directed at Newsweek um, about attribution. Yeah, and it's something that we saw that Bianca had brought up last or recently as well about outlets beyond yours, you know, with the Herald um, that basically just kind of borrow your work if, and that's the most kind, unprofessional way I'll put it, uh, but that without proper attribution. Um, can you just sort of explain like what like what the heck is up with that? Just from the standpoint of, you know, from the world of print journalism, the work that's being done on the ground, you know, for you in DC, Bianca down in Miami. Um, what's happening? Is there like a groundswell of of beat reporters starting to say, you know, what the hell is no, like we're done with, you know, larger outlets basically stealing, pardon my language, stealing our shit, basically. Um, can you just sort of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's, it's a complicated question. Um, I think in the case for the story I wrote about Democrats responding to Biden, um, you know, I, I posted on Newsweek, it's something I rarely do because um, they, you know, not just took a, a, a snippet or a quote of the story. Um, that I wrote, they literally um, took every single thing I wrote and, and kind of presented it in the same way, used the same quotes. Um, they attributed it to the Miami Herald. They didn't link to our coverage. Um, so I think in, in those cases for me, um, you know, it, it, you always want, you know, your work to be seen. Um, you'd rather it be seen organically rather than from someone kind of rewriting it. Um, but general best practices um, for doing that, which most news organizations do do, the, the New York Times does it, the Washington Post does it. A lot of local newspapers do it, you know, certainly, uh, and, and even, you know, CNNs of the world will do that kind of stuff because, you know, frankly, for stuff like this, there's too much news and not enough reporters to cover them. Um, and it's a way you can get content out quickly. Uh, the general, um, you know, industry accepted standard is, you know, whatever you use that you didn't get on your own, you need to credit in some way. Um, the Newsweek story did do that to, to some extent. Um, the problem was, is especially in the case where they basically, you know, didn't even just use a paragraph or two of, you know, my reporting and maybe a larger story that they might have done that maybe they just couldn't replicate or whatever. Um, they didn't link to basically the story that they were um, copying and pasting to 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 say it mildly. And, um, you know, that's just something that, you know, when I saw that, um, it was like, hey, you know, that was a lot of work on my end. And, you know, it's uh, 
it's our job also to just think creatively. And we also know people in Miami. Uh, that's the value of local journalism that, you know, national outlet just may not even think to talk to or know about. Um, and so that's where, you know, that came from, which just, you know, and, it's, and this isn't like me attacking Newsweek specifically or any of their reporters. They do good work. Um, but, you know, in that case, it was, uh, you know, kind of interesting to read because uh, initially when I saw that story, I thought, oh, you know, they talked to one of the same people I talked to, which happens all the time. Uh, and then when I read it, I was like, oh, wait, you know, they, they didn't do that at all. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a challenge in journalism, something that local journalists uh, in particular face, um, you know, especially when our work doesn't necessarily have the same kind of national reach that, you know, a New York Times or Washington Post or, you know, cable news network might. Yeah, see, because I saw the tweet, I was like, that's so politely written. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yo, like, stop stealing our man's stuff, you know, <laughs> properly attributed. So, yeah, uh, thank was, you for expanding on that, Alex. It, it was very politely written. And it's funny because in back to back episodes, the same thing happened to Bianca, like, like Nick mentioned. And in each case, by the way, I want to give Nick credit and Alex full disclosure. Nick and I are both journalism grads from Rutgers University. So obviously, oh, you both started out, you know, in, in, in print and radio. Um, it was it was something that resonated with him. And he's like, hey, back to back guests. Look at this getting stuff stolen from the national level. So like you mentioned, I'm glad that you expanded on that for our listeners. Um, and like I mentioned, check out all of Alex's work on the Miami Herald dot com. Uh, you do fantastic work, Alex. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, all the best to you and continued success. Thank you for, so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much. All right. Like we mentioned, that was Alex Doherty from the Miami Herald does fantastic work. Seriously, this is I, look, this is by accident, folks, back to back guests from the Herald. But local journalism, like we mentioned, matters. Uh, we love to give them a safe space here to to really communicate what's going on in different parts of the country. You know, you've seen that with Jessica Coggins coming on from the Texas Signal. Bianca came on. And now Alex. Alex does fantastic work covering, you know, the Washington side of this. But, you know, like I mentioned at the intro, I, I, I don't want to dive headfirst into some of the failed or successful policies of either Trump or, or Biden or even Obama, like he mentioned, and, you know, giving the legitimacy to Raul Castro back then when he did some of those policies, like there's, uh, there's so much emotion there. And I, I don't feel like I'm well-versed enough to really, even though I'm Cuban American and have lived some of this and seen my grandparents, you know, really argue about the different policies that different presidents here in the States have taken towards them, you know, things that happened in early 2000s with Elian Gonzalez here, the protests, like he mentioned in 94, like all of that has been covered at great extent, uh, specifically when my grandparents lived in Florida, uh, in my, in Miami, obviously. And, and so there's just so much raw emotion with all of that. I want to keep it to the bare bones part of it, which is there's a humanitarian crisis going on in a country that is is really at a crisis right now, you know, food, water and health supplies, you know, common things that we take for granted here in the states that are not being given to those folks. And we've got a global health crisis on our hands still. I know some people think it is over, but it's not for some countries that are having slow rollouts of the vaccine. And then we got here in the states where people won't even take the vaccine, so which is a different episode altogether. So. There's so much happening there. And then you see the protest of people going on the streets and then the government coming in, like he mentioned. And there was recent news as of this taping of a high Cuban official that, you know, kind of resigned because of some of the violence by police officers on these protesters. So the government stepping in, the Cuban government stepping in, 
shutting down internet access, like you mentioned, Nick, at the beginning. That is so crazy and an unheard of to think of that happening here. You know, you see that happen in places like North Korea, where they control the narrative and message that's spun out to the rest of the world. Uh, Nick, give me your take, not only on Alex, but but the overall uh, crisis that's happening in, in Cuba. Yeah, I, I thought, I mean, it's support local journalism, folks. You know, Alex does the beat from D.C. We talked about, uh, you know, Bianca's worked down in Miami recently. Um, it was just, I mean, it's fantastic. Journalists are great. <laughs> Honestly, there's no no room for hot takery, none of that nonsense. Um, Alex is very straightforward. You know, what he knows um, to the best of his ability, what seems to be the trends going on politically, just domestically, in, in terms of the Biden's, the Biden administration's approach to Cuba. So I just appreciate hearing Alex really take us through that over the last few days. Um, and also just a little bit of an understanding as to this current administration in Cuba, the, you know, the third administration since Fidel Castro's uh, party, you know, came into power in the 50s. Um, so it's just helpful to really get that helpful contextual understanding. Mike, I think you made reference to, um, you know, our episode a few, we- a few weeks back um, in terms of the conflict in the Middle East. Again, getting someone who can just tell us realistically what's going on and historically sort of what's been leading up to it. Um, at the same time, too, just getting a chance to talk about, you know, how are we honoring and acknowledging the work of journalists? you know, print journalists, um, for a second week in a row, for a second time in a row, actually, you know, we're talking to someone who had to go before social media and bring up the fact that, yo, people are taking my work, you know, to these larger outlets. And, you know, Alex, to his credit, called out Newsweek for, for doing so. Bianca, to her credit, you know, called out some outlets who were just talking about the work of local journalists, you know, bring, bringing up their work, but not necessarily attributing it, at least in the way that, you know, from the field of journalism, that the way you're supposed to do it. Um, and I appreciate Alex being very upfront about just what was coming up for him professionally when that happened. Uh, but yeah, no, just, uh, it's an awesome conversation, man. No, very, very well said. Uh, appreciate all the work that Alex is doing, local journalists as well. Like I mentioned, specifically, at, not only at the Miami Herald, but other places around the country. Uh, if you've got a local paper or something like that, and, and they've got a pay for subscription, give them a few bucks there and get some great content. Uh, you won't regret it. I promise you that. Um, for our show, speaking of great content, uh, YouTube, subscribe, please. Nick is pointing down, smashing the button, of course. Audio platforms, you know them by now. If you can, please leave us a five-star review and comment on those audio podcast platforms. Leave us a four-star review and you are indeed a hater. That's right. That's right. And we can see who the reviews are. Um, Just like that guy who called us a... a Remember that guy who called us a propaganda machine? Anyway. Go kick rocks. Yeah, right. And then in case anyone's curious about the whole thing about like, you know, our our vaccine record and stuff. um, Yeah, get vaxxed and keep the masks on. It's real at these streets, man. And if you if you got an issue with it, come in my mess mentions. Yeah, Open. yeah. I mean, all of that's going to get clipped out, folks. But anyway, uh, so <laughs> and like we mentioned as well in the audio podcast platforms on video as well, there's a Patreon link right there. Click on the Patreon link, become a subscriber. You're going to get some more bonus content from all of our guests, some show merchandise, and you'll get episodes before they drop for the general public. Uh, we thank everybody so much for watching, listening over the next couple of weeks. Nick is actually going on another vacation. I can't believe it. Um, and we will be doing our best of Patreon show to really showcase what some of these guests that have come on the program 
and have told us some stories off air when we keep the cameras rolling for Patreon. So you're going to get a little bit of a taste of that while we're on vacation. And we can't wait to dive into some of the topics that we have coming up in the summer months. Uh, there's going to be some fantastic guests coming on the program. So you'll find out all about that in a few weeks. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saberi. Thank you so much for watching, listening. We truly, truly, truly appreciate it. And have a good one, everybody. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.